Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on November 18th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Two unbelievably fantastic guests today. Uh, first, Erin Fouzet-Brown, professor of law at Georgia State University's College of Law, where she teaches administrative law, uh, health law, financing, delivery, and the healthcare transactional and regulatory practicum. She's a faculty member of the School Center for Law, Health, and Society. Uh, in 2019, she was awarded a grant from the Laura and John Arnold Foundation to study out-of-network air ambulance bills. She served as co-investigator on a grant from the National Human Genome Research Institute to study legal protections for participants in genomic research. Uh, she's won the 2017 Patricia T. Morgan Award for Outstanding Scholarship. The list goes on. Elizabeth McCuskey is a professor of law at UMass School of Law. There she teaches civil procedure, health law, food and drug law, and healthcare antitrust courses. Courses. Her research focuses on regulatory reforms for health equity and court's roles in securing those reforms. She's broadly published in excellent journals, and her work on ERISA preemption and state health law reform has been featured on the Health Affairs blog, and she has covered FDA preemption for SCOTUS blog. She was a 2016 SLME Health Law Scholar. Liz, a truly overdue welcome to Twill. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. And Erin, a warm welcome back. So by my count, this is your seventh appearance on the pod. The first being episode five, which was more than four and a half years ago. And I think episode five, I was still like twiddling audio knobs at random. So uh, thank you uh, so much for uh, all the times you've been on. And I've been really looking forward to this. It's great to be back. So let's see if everyone agrees, because today's topic is ERISA. Uh, beloved of generations of health law students, not. And as any quick Google search will attest, the subject of some fine internet memes. ERISA is health law's version of Lord Voldemort, it that must not be named. I know it's easy to skip to your next downloaded pod, but Erin and Liz are the true experts, and you'll be a much better person if you stay around for today's ERISA lesson. So they have a fantastic new article coming out in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review entitled Federalism, ERISA and State Single-Payer Healthcare. In a nut, if I can so risk compressing a 91-page PDF, uh, you describe ERISA, or more accurately, I suppose, ERISA preemption, as both a trap for the architects of state single-payer health plans and also something of a disruptor of good design as those states start working on their plans. But I thought, if you wouldn't mind, we would leave single-payer and those plans briefly, as well as the specific ERISA impacts, and start by examining more generally what you term in the paper, quote, the ERISA preemption labyrinth, uh, this odd path-dependent nightmare with intended and unintended consequences. I know this is particularly hard on you, but the pod not only has non-lawyer listeners, but it has listeners from outside of the U.S. 
So where do you want to start? Let's start at the very beginning. Let's just start in 1974. We can talk about uh, ERISA itself. So the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, which we all love to hate called ERISA, um, was passed to standardize rules protecting employees' retirement benefits and to encourage employers to provide those benefits. In the compromises and revisions that led to the final statute, Congress extended ERISA to apply to employer-sponsored health benefits and included this broadly worded preemption provision that has frustrated state legislators and launched, you know, a thousand law review articles in the 45 years since. So the labyrinth involves the statute's own provisions as well as the jurisprudential attempts to make sense of them, none of which have succeeded. So the statute preempts any and all state laws that, quote, relate to employee benefits, which is enormously broad and has seemingly no limiting principles. The statute then creates an exception and saves from preemption those state laws that regulate insurance. And last, the statutory provision creates an exception to the exception, which says that states may not deem an entity to be engaged in insurance for the purpose of regulating it. So in the 45 years since its enactment, the world of employer-sponsored health benefits has evolved significantly, and courts have basically constantly wrestled with how to make sense of these provisions. You refer to the ERISA preemption provisions with the term whipsaw, which I think is is very accurate because you're out, no, you're then you're in, and then you're out again. Specifically, how has that preemption labyrinth driven a wedge between two types of employer-provided group health insurance, the fully funded and and the self-insured models. So it's created uh, this two-tier system where states can regulate employer benefits that are employers who buy essentially insurance policies for their employees from insurers versus employers who do uh, this thing called self-funding, where the employer puts aside their own money, makes a promise directly to their employees to cover their health care, and then uses a claims administrator to pay for those claims. So the, the Whipsaw basically starts with this giant preemption provision uh, where state law that references employee benefits or directly regulates employee benefits or even has a connection with employee benefits by creating these like indirect economic effects that might influence employer choice is preempted. But then the first piece of the whipsaw kicks in and states can regulate health insurance providers, Aetna, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and the insurance policies that they sell to employers. But the last piece of the whipsaw is what really breaks up states' ability to regulate uh, the entirety of their population because employers who self-fund their benefits are immune from state health insurance law. Uh, So states who want to have essential health benefits or who want to have contributions from uh, employer self-funded plans cannot enforce those rules. I remember, I mean, this is long before either of you were in teaching probably, I remember um, having to teach the ERISA preemption cases around the managed care regulation of the 90s. But the odd sort of little appearance in the courts, uh, like cases like Gobey, the claims database case that went up to the Supreme Court, I sort of had, had managed to sort of push ERISA into the background because it didn't seem so important after the Affordable Care Act. 
Yeah, it, ERISA created, I think, some space that the Affordable Care Act filled because the ERISA preemption provision pretty much prohibits states from enacting their own employer mandate. That's a pretty direct regulation on employer-sponsored benefits. Uh, but because the Affordable Care Act enacted a federal mandate, uh, all states now effectively have an employer mandate. However, the Affordable Care Act uh, left ERISA preemption untouched. So the areas of federal law that the Affordable Care Act hasn't filled in and that Congress hasn't patched in the years after the Affordable Care Act still remain for states to try to regulate uh, in those areas. And the underlying scheme of ERISA preemption still prevents states from directly regulating employer-sponsored benefits and from really enforcing any of their rules against employers who self-fund those benefits. So to the extent that states are trying to fill in or evolve their health insurance markets and their health insurance regulation, ERISA preemption uh, was left untouched by the Affordable Care Act. So Erin, perhaps you could you could take us a little bit more into some of these areas where ERISA could adversely affect state insurance laws, even before we get into the more complex single payer laws that you, you've written about. I know you've written a lot about um, things like surprise billing laws. Obviously, there are a lot of price cost things floating around in uh, state legislatures at the moment. And we've also, uh, and I've written or talked about this, we've seen quite a few sort of mini ACA laws being pushed into state law as some predictably or typically blue states worry that the ACA is going to disappear. How do, how do all these pieces fit together? Yeah. So as Liz, you know, really helpfully pointed out and gave a backdrop for, I mean, the Affordable Care Care Act did fill in some of the the gaps that the um, the ERISA preemption provisions had created by creating sort of the federal version of these. And of course, federal law isn't preempted by ERISA because it's a co-equal federal law, um, and only state laws are. But I think what we what you've suggested, Nick, is correct that there are lots of areas in which states continue to sort of innovate these uh, health reforms that are being thwarted or complicated at the very least by ERISA preemption. And so three you know. Know, very clear examples that we like to point to. One comes from the Gobey case, um, and that is the sort of effort by states to gather healthcare claims data, which is the actual sort of allowed amounts, the amounts paid for healthcare encounters. And this data is extremely valuable, both to understand what's going on in the healthcare, you know, healthcare market more lo- largely, but also the idea that any of this information must be studied and somehow processed in a way to create any sort of price transparency. So price transparency is a buzzword. It is certainly not the panacea, but it is the basis for a lot of other types of reforms and to get, um, whether it's a state or another type of policymaker, to get their arms around healthcare costs. So healthcare price transparency efforts have been thwarted by ERISA. States cannot require self-funded employers to participate in a state's all-payer claims database, which has driven uh, a lot of push for a federal all-payer claims database if states can't cover the whole market with their own. Um, So that's one example example. Another example is, as you've alluded to, surprise medical billing. So surprise medical billing is when uh, a patient who has insurance inadvertently sort of, you know, not through their own choice, ends up seeing an out-of-network provider. Um, Usually it's in an emergency or if they're at an in-network facility and the anesthesiologist is out of network, they can get a surprise medical bill from an, you know, an out-of-network balance bill from the out-of-network provider. And this is broadly seen sort of on a bipartisan basis as unfair, 
there as being not sort of intended to be the result of this breakdown of negotiation between a health plan and the providers. And so the patient shouldn't be left holding the bag. And and a lot of the consumer protections that states have put in place to sort of shield consumers or hold them harmless from these bills have been very effective, but they basically cannot touch the self-funded um, ERISA plan because a lot of times any, any dispute resolution provision or any provision that would require the plan to pay the out-of-network provider based on a benchmark would be, you know, preempted by ERISA. And so even state attempts to control surprise medical billing, again, can only reach so far because they can't touch the the self-funded ERISA plans. And then a third example would be, um, you know, again, another area of great bipartisan concern is is controlling drug prices. And so pharmacy benefit managers, those shadowy middlemen um, that gobble up, you know, a great part of the supply chain in pharmaceuticals and contribute, um, you know, seemingly contribute quite a bit to the cost, the end user's cost of prescription drugs. Um, Any efforts that states have made to shed any light on the uh, PBM's, you know, revenues or their rebates or how much spread pricing they're engaging in and what their strategies are, uh, all of those transparency and regulatory efforts have also been um, challenged and in at least one case, you know, held to be preempted when it comes to you know, again, a self-funded plans uh, PBM. So it is, you know, everything a state tries in the sort of new, now it's less managed care, it's more about transparency and cost control and surprise medical billing and dealing with market failures. But all of the efforts that states have been really at the forefront on have been preempted, or at least challenged by uh, an ERISA challenge. So let's turn to the single payer plans. And dear listener, if you just don't want to learn about ERISA, I still recommend in this article because it's the it's the best typing if you like of state single payer healthcare that I've come across and it, it's 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 worth the read just for that so as I understand the issue when it comes to designing these plans the billion dollar question I think is how you put it in the article is how do you capture the employer extended amounts that they have been paying for group health insurance how do you capture that to roll it into your single payer plan. And that's the design problem, but it's also where ERISA comes into play and impacts the sort of the, as you put it, the nudges and incentives that otherwise uh, would apply if you were just doing this plan design clean of ERISA. So if that's roughly correct, could you explain sort of your typology that you've used here and sort of expand on this a lot. It's a fascinating piece of work. Well, thank you. One of the the exciting things about this project that that Liz and I did is we started out saying, well, you know, we're going to do the RISA analysis for state single-payer health reform proposals because it seemed to be the unanswered question. There'd be all these great analyses, economic analyses, and everyone would get to the RISA question and just throw their hands up in the air and say, who knows, Um, maybe preempted. And so we just set about to actually answer that question. Well, first, we had to gather every single payer bill we could find. And we decided to use our starting point as the Affordable Care Act, since that seemed like a pretty good reset button um, moment in time. And we figured we find maybe, I don't know, half a dozen bills, we've, you know, maybe maybe a dozen. We ended up finding and, you know, collecting and coding 66 unique single payer bills across 21 states. And so we were, we were quite shocked by the depth, the detail, the diversity, and the number of bills that we found. Um, and then we, you know, had to kind of 
organize them according to what they were doing because they were quite different from each other. Um, but they did have some, you know, again, when it ca- we were focused on this question of the ERISA preemption question. So we looked at how do you capture those employer expenditures um, because it's the billion dollar question as you ca- you well characterize, Nick, and because it's the mo- the part that may be one of the most difficult for states to do as opposed to a federal health care reform. You know, that's one of the big um, differences between a state trying to do this and, and the federal government. And so we looked at these various ways to capture employer spending on health insurance because right now, you know, as we you may know, about half the population gets their coverage from private employer sponsored health care. Uh, and so if we don't capture that population um, and the sort of the the money flows into that that flows into that um, population's health care, then it's, it's it leaves a big hole and so you can't have single payer. Um, and also the financing won't work because you need this group being the more healthy um, part of the risk pool to sort of even out the risk pool from the rest of with the rest of the population. Um, so it's both sort of fiscally necessary as well as just uh, in principle necessary to ha- achieve single payer. And so the simplest way that states could do this would be simply to pass an employer mandate. You know, if an employer is in the state and offers health coverage to their employees, they must offer the state single payer plan as their employee benefit plan. That would be the most direct way. Um, and that would, you know, accomplish a lot of the capturing of employer expenditures. But it that would, of course, would be preempted by ERISA. And so states have to come up with alternate ways to, to do that that they can't do because of um, ERISA preemption. And so we found three ways um, that that we call type A, type B, and type C um, that, that state bills use to kind of do in an indirect way what they can't do directly through an employer mandate. The first, and probably the most important, is the what we call the funding plan. Um, the funding plan is simply a, a, a payroll tax and or um, an, an income tax uh, to allow the the actual taxing of benefits or taxing of wages rather to pay for the state single payer benefit. So it's not a tax on the benefit; it's a tax on the wages of the of the employer, um, on, and that would pay for the employees and others sort of essentially premiums into the state single payer plan. So the funding plan does a lot of this work because it, it, the analogy that we came across is one of sort of a public school analogy. It's the idea or a private school analogy is that everyone has to pay property taxes that allow if you have a child, your child is allowed to go to the uh, public school in your area. No one's exempt from paying their property taxes. Um, it, you know, household is. However, if you wanted to double pay, pay your property tax and pay private school tuition, you certainly could. There's nothing in the law that says you couldn't do that. Um, and similar here, there's no, you know, prohibition on an employer continuing to maintain its own uh, private, you know, employer-sponsored health care, uh, but you would be double paying, essentially. And if the public single-payer plan is good enough, then most people would probably opt not to buy both, but just, you know, pay their payroll tax and enroll in the state single payer plan. So that payroll tax uh, is very important. And we found a couple of other, you know, types of mechanisms, but that one ended up being very powerful. The second provision was simply a provider restriction. So ERISA, you know, a lot of the cases say states still have a pretty broad flexibility to regulate providers. So if we, you know, one of the things we found were, for example, bills saying that all the payments that the um, providers receive if they participate in the state single payer plan plan have to come from the single payer plan at the single payer rates. And so what does that do? Well, it shrinks the provider network. If you ha- if you only can participate at single payer rates and only can build a single payer plan, you're no longer going to contract with the employer-based plans. And so their provider networks will shrink and people will follow their doctors into the single payer plan. Um, and then the final one is just a uh, 
what we call pay and recoup provisions, assignment, subrogation, secondary payer, which are just insure speak for the single payer plan would then bill, you know, be the sort of billing, collecting all the money um, and paying all the claims. And if someone has dual coverage, if they say still had their employer based plan and they were enrolled in the single payer plan, then the single payer, the state single payer plan could turn around, pay the bill and then recoup or get reimbursed from the person's collateral source of coverage. Um, So just ways of kind of moving dollars, moving lives, creating incentives, but again, all as a workaround because they can't do it directly. Liz, why do we need to go beyond A, right? Doesn't doesn't that just take care of it? I mean, is, is it legally suspect in any way? So there are there are a couple moves uh, that make the A, B, and C, uh, we think, evolution in the state bills a, a way to gird against the imminent threat of ERISA litigation. So part of the problem with ERISA preemption and like dunking on ERISA preemption has become essentially a sport for the Supreme Court and health law professors. Uh, because part of the problem is that its indeterminacy means that the outcome of any particular litigation is often very hard to predict. And the Supreme Court takes a lot of ERISA cases. So the funding plan, a payroll tax on employers, would seem to have a very direct path uh, evading ERISA preemption because it doesn't regulate benefits and states enjoy wide latitude to raise revenue and to tax. However, there was a suggestion in a Supreme Court case uh, that at some point, a tax on employers might be so high as to create what the Supreme Court refers to as the Hobson's choice or the forced choice in which it would be utterly irrational to both continue to offer benefits and pay the tax. Supreme Court did not set what the limit on exorbitancy is. And so that kind of led to uh, a circuit split right now between the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit on how far a state's um, employer contribution kind of uh, tax scheme can go before it creates this forced choice. So the indeterminacy of how much tax is too much before an employer's hand is forced uh, certainly invites litigation from any and all employers who uh, don't favor the state's plan um, and increases, therefore, the transaction costs, the political capital that's expended in passing this kind of law. So we think that, uh, and I hope I speak for Aaron still, (laughs) but we think that a a faithfully, precisely applied ERISA analysis would still be able to have the state funding plans non-preempted. However, adding the type B and type C, the provider restriction and uh, the assignment or secondary payer is a little bit of a belt and suspenders uh, to gird against the imminent threat of ERISA preemption litigation. But it also helps move the actual employees onto the state's plan because the state also can't mandate that the employers drop their plan. So because the uh, states can't mandate that employers drop their plan, uh, the provider restriction essentially kind of dries up the network for an employer plan and creates a broad, almost infinite network for the state single payer plan. So that's kind of a nudge. And then the assignment or secondary payer provision enables employers to still keep their employee benefit plans despite the state single payer plan. So that helps keep an employer's choices open for preemption purposes. Uh, But it does recognize that if there is an employer-sponsored plan that is responsible for paying for an employee's health care, that it would overlap with the state single payer plan eligibility. And so the state can either recoup from the employer the money that the state spends first or vice versa. Is there any danger for a state that goes A plus B plus C that they sort of 
highlight just how far they're pushing folks, which might make the Supreme Court sort of say this is Hobson's choice, as, as, as you noted earlier. I mean, could A plus B plus C be worse than a state choosing just one or two of these? I tend to think that the indeterminacy of ERISA jurisprudence uh, means that um, but it's, a, it's a Hobson's choice for state legislators uh, because they don't, they're not going to be able to, I think, predict with certainty which aspects of the plan uh, a court will or won't uphold under ERISA preemption. Um, you have a little more certainty if you're in the First or the Ninth Circuit because you have at least some circuit precedent. So I think I think your point is a good one strategically, that it might highlight what a large undertaking the state single player single payer plan is with respect to employer-sponsored healthcare. But ultimately, uh, I think it really is a kind of beneficial redundancy because the not every provision is going to be subject to the same level of threat from ERISA. So at least you would still have mechanisms that would keep the single payer plan in place if one of the others were held to be preempted. A, a slightly uh, Diagonal point um, I, sh- I should have raised earlier. In, in your analysis of these bills, I think you said there were over 60 of them that you looked at. In how many did you think that there had been some explicit moves to address the ERISA elephant in the room? Well, I think that the all of these type A, B, and C features that we found encoded, and granted, not all of the 66 bills had them, but I would say the, va- the vast majority um, had some you know, A, B, C, or some combination. Uh, I think they were very consciously trying to address the ERISA issue without doing the thing that they're not allowed to do, which, as you me- mentioned, is the sort of Voldemort rule, right? One of the one line of cases um, says, you know, if you make reference to an ERISA plan, uh, then, you know, there's, there's some additional language about what it means to make reference to an ERISA plan. But some courts have taken that so extremely literally that they have said, if you mention uh, employee benefits, plan or the word ERISA or the t- name of the statute, if you say it, then you're preempted, then the state law is preempted. And so I think what a lot of the states were trying to do is be very savvy, actually, about not, um, not not sort of calling attention and naming the thing they were trying to do. But there's almost not no reason, um, but there's almost no reason to have, for example, the pay and recoup sort of assignment and secondary payer provisions, if you thought that on day one of your single payer plan, all employee benefit plans would just disappear. I mean, you you might want to be able to have um, some pay and recoup for out of state plans or for you know some federal types of employee benefit plans that might not uh, disappear overnight. But you know there there seems to be a very conscious choice by the state legislators and a, and a sophisticated one to try to you know pull on these levers um, without saying the word ERISA and without triggering, you know, an ERISA sort of walking over the line. So I don't know how it sort of, and then we had a couple of conversations with state legislative staff and and they, it's very much top of mind. I mean, it is not an accident that these provisions are here and that they are crafted in this way. Um, so they're being quite deliberate about their use of these provisions. So let's sort of move on to solutions, sort of next steps. You have a very succinct uh, conclusion to your article. ERISA preemption has outlived its utility as applied to health insurance and has elevated the preferences of private businesses above the interests of sovereign states in ways that subvert federalism. The time has come to remove ERISA's obstructions and to unlock states' capacities as laboratories of health reform. I guess if you were writing this as an exam, that would be followed by disgust. One of the ways that I thought this article was a real contribution 
was the way you discussed ERISA in the context of federalism. And this aspect I found particularly interesting because clearly we've been in some periods of or experiencing periods of rebalancing or recalibrating federalism in the health space with sort of the ACA going one way, then the NFIB expansion decision goes the other, and now the potential for perhaps more Medicaid powers, work requirements, block grants, shifting more powers to states again. But what I took away from sort of the last piece of the article was your sense that ERISA isn't in any sense a calibration tool, that it's it's such a, uh, an on-off switch that that really is what is sort of subverting federalism. Is that a fair comment? I think that's a very fair comment. Um, in the ERISA preemption landscape, it is, I think, slightly different from and worse than some of the other federalism calibrations uh, that have gone awry after the Affordable Care Act and NFIB versus Sebelius. ERISA more so acts almost as a kind of a, a one-way ratchet. It's just a spoiler for states who want to expand their healthcare regulation. Because ERISA doesn't put in place a lot of federal law that actually displaces state law, it really just spoils states' abilities uh, to do these kinds of experiments, and in particular, the kinds of experiments that aim for a more universal approach. In other words, states' uh, regulatory efforts to capture their entire market. So if we think of the states as laboratories and model testers, uh, the way kind of Massachusetts was for the Affordable Care Act, ERISA pre uh, preempts and deters states from acting in that capacity for these more universal kinds of experiments. Um, so in that way, I think it's it's uniquely disruptive from a federalism standpoint in that it is a, a one-way, it's almost a, a one-way problem. And it only hurts states' expansive regulations. I would totally agree with everything uh, Liz just said and to your characterization. The federalism problem became really clear when we think about the dynamic that it creates. And it creates this situation where if a large multi-state employer, oh, I don't know, Walmart, or uh, something, uh, a Walmart-like employer, wanted to, you know, opposed a state's effort to do single payer at the state level. Let's say New York wants to do single payer and Walmart doesn't want it to. It's possible, I mean, we don't think it's the right answer, but it's possible that a court will agree with Walmart, which will, you know, almost inevitably bring a case to challenge the state's single payer reform. Um, it's possible a court would agree and prevent the state from, you know, having its health reform experiment seen out through, you know, f you know, through its fruition, even though that's what the state citizens want, even though that's it's willing to raise its own taxes on itself, it's willing to sort of take all of the political um, coalitions and create a plan. And even if all of that happens, it's possible that uh, a multi-state employer could have essentially a veto effect on that. And we thought that that was very, that inverts the idea of preemption. It's not, you know, we think of preemption as being a federal versus state concern. And what we saw in, in action really was less that the federal government doesn't want uh, New York to be able to do this. It's that we're, we're giving to the private entities, in this case, private multi-state employers, the ability to veto or to threaten or thwart a state's uh, efforts in this regard. And I think that that really turns the federalism conversation on its head because we usually think of federalism as trying to calibrate the balance of power between the federal government on the one hand and the states on the other. What role for each of those governments do we want to preserve? How much flexibility do we want states to have? That's usually the typical federalism conversation in healthcare. And instead, what we see is this injection of this you know, veto power by a private entity, um, a large multi-state employee. 
lawyer in this case. So I think that that that's the part of it that I think we thought was not only, you know, even more disruptive, but also more problematic in the ERISA context than in other sort of federalism debates when it comes to the ACA or Medicare or Medicaid. And clearly, there are examples of those sort of private private actor um, plays, um, literally involving um, Walmart ERISA cases, but moving away from the employer slightly, the the real threats that were made by Connecticut-based insurance companies when Connecticut suggested maybe they would have a, a public option. Um, and you could see that that private actor uh, strength um, dominance uh, being exercised there. So what are the solutions? Is federal legislative intervention a real possibility here? Or is that as unlikely as maybe seeing Medicare for all legislated at the federal level? Or, or what, what are the other options for removing ERISA's teeth or making them less sharp? Maybe it's just because I've been digging in on ERISA for so long that I need a ray of sunshine, but I tend to see this as a pretty good moment for harnessing some of the health reform momentum uh, to include ERISA reform. And here are a couple reasons for that moment. Uh, one, which Aaron and I have talked about in the article, is that the Affordable Care Act did change some of the underlying conditions um, for employer-sponsored health insurance. Namely, there's an employer mandate and there are nationwide rules for health insurance. So that uniformity uh, is being provided by the ACA. Um, and so ERISA pre is not as much needed to preserve that uniformity. Uh, but we've also seen some, some good political momentum. Uh, there was just a federal bill introduced by Representative Rokana uh, that would change the Affordable Care Act's 1332 waiver to include the ability to waive ERISA preemption for particular state experiments. That's kind of a very limited way. That's maybe pulling only one or two ERISA teeth, uh, but it's it, it's a good start towards a uh, fully <laughs> fully toothless ERISA preemption. And certainly, state legislators have um, have banded together and asked uh, federal the federal government, federal representatives, uh, to try to put an ERISA waiver into their long list of legislators of priorities uh, so that they could enact all kinds of state health reforms uh, that Congress is unwilling to move on at the federal level. Are you as full of sunshine, Aaron? Or do you think uh, you may have to go to the Supreme Court or elsewhere? I am somewhat optimistic, um, as Liz is, just because there is this attention that is being paid, I think, from multiple angles. So it's not just the single payer people who are saying we need a risk preemption reform, um, but it's also the surprise medical billing. And it's also the people who want price transparency and, and solutions for PBM regulation. So this is a pretty broad coalition. Um, and a lot of states are starting to get some strong traction on a sort of a political basis to say, OK, Congress, you really need to do something about ERISA. And in our paper, we talk about, you know, a, a few different ways, you know, like there there are so many ways we could amend ERISA, which would all make it better than we have what, what we have today. Um, we lay out, for example, changing ERISA sort of broad any and all preemption to something that is more akin to floor preemption, like what we have in HIPAA, where states are, are may not fall below a sort of uniform federal floor. Maybe that, that, for example, is provided by the Affordable Care Act regulations. But if states wanted to go beyond that, as long as it's non-conflicting with ERISA, then that would be permitted. Um, currently, states can't even you know pass non-conflicting uh, state regulation of any sort, whether it conflicts or not. It would be a, it would be preempted by ERISA. So that's one suggestion. Another suggestion would be to just get rid of the D 
Deamer Clause, or at least at least get rid of the Deamer Clause with respect to self-funded health benefits. Um, we don't really have anything to say about pensions. I think those can be sort of left alone. Um, but the Deamer Clause is sort of was never the intention of Congress. Uh, it never it was never intended to be such a big loophole uh, for states to for employers to walk through. So, for example, when we were doing the research, we found the statistic that in 1974, when ERISA was being debated and passed, one nobody was even talking about health insurance. It was totally about retirement benefits. Um, health insurance was sort of brought in at the end, and at the time, they thought that the state the savings clause that saved state insurance regulation would basically, you know, cr- allow states to continue doing the, the sort of health type of regulation that they had been doing. Um, because at that point, something like you know over 90 percent of health of employer based plans were fully insured, and then the Deamer clause was sort of in there, but it doesn't say anything on its face about self funded health plans. It was interpreted that way 10 years you know after ERISA, and it was only at that point when the Supreme Court created this loophole that everyone's you know the whole market stampeded into the self funded plan space. So now we see something like over 60 percent of employer based plans are now self funded. So to take advantage of the Deamer clause loophole, so um, that sort of answers the last question, which is, do we have any confidence that the Supreme Court can, well, it can fix this, but will it fix this? There's no indication that the Supreme Court or any federal court will necessarily fix the ERISA problem, even though we actually think that they are empowered to do so. I mean, they created through the jurisprudence that we've, you know, documented the ERISA labyrinth, the preemption, the interpretation of the Deamer Clause, and they can undo that if they want as well, Um, you know, particularly because there isn't a lot of agreement. It's not like there's a, a ton of stable precedent um, that everyone is operating under. So yes, courts could interpret ERISA in a much more narrow sense um, and not apply the preemption as broadly as it has. Um, But we also don't have a ton of confidence that the courts can be trusted with that task. So we really do think Congress is the, you know, the best place to turn to. And that was the week in health law. My thanks to Professors Fuse Brown and McCuskey for an extraordinary synthesis of an exposition of uh, ERISA. I don't think any of us will be ever the same again. Um, you can find them on Twitter at E Fuse Brown, that's E F U S E B R O W N, and at L I Z underscore McCuskey, L I Z underscore M C C U S K E Y. Thank you so much for being on the show. That was that was just wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Nick. Show notes are at tool.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>